I'm Sanjit Sethi, and this is On Topic, Conversations on Cultural Leadership. Deanna and Roger Cummings founded Juxtaposition Arts 25 years ago in North Minneapolis to engage young artists in educational and career development through creativity. As Juxta's chief cultural producer, Roger activates relationships between space and place through art, design, independent livelihood, and collective social enterprise. A few days after our conversation, Deanna transitioned from Juxta's CEO to program director of arts at the McKnight Foundation. When we interviewed Roger and Deanna on the morning of May 28th, it was three days after George Floyd was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer. After our conversations, the evening of the 28th, the third precinct in the city of Minneapolis would burn to the ground. It's hard not to think that this conversation, being scheduled on May 28th, is more than coincidental. This week, we're sharing my conversation with Roger and Deanna. I don't think people are apathetic. I, I think the, the protests last night are, are proof that people aren't apathetic. People show up for what is important to them. This conversation is so very rooted in the moment it occurred, and the weight of that is impossible to ignore. In our conversation, Roger and Deanna spoke with such clarity about the trauma of our moment, the need for cultural resilience, and how we all need to be better listeners, especially with our youth. It's important as we need to mark, I think, this moment in time as we have a conversation about issues regarding uh, culture and equity uh, and resilience uh, for us to think about uh, where we are right now. Uh, and I'm thinking about it in relationship to um, the fact that we're uh, on Thursday, we're recording this on Thursday, May 28th, uh, in a moment where um, that um, the entire country, but certainly the city of Minneapolis, has really been struck with the tragedy um, uh, of the killing of George Floyd um, and the subsequent aftermath uh, on this. And while these things take a while to process, I I wanted to know, Roger and Deanna, uh, are there initial thoughts that you have uh, about what you're experiencing and, and, and what you're witnessing and thoughts that you may have about how a community um, even starts a healing process? Okay, uh, so how how am I fe- how am I feeling about community healing? And so, like, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, in '68, and so, like, on some level, I was like, I was brought into existence in this in this in this environment in this atmosphere. Um, so, and I'm sure people were asking the same questions as far as as far as like healing, um, and yeah so that like like that um how can there be healing there has to be a lot of equity and a redistribution of 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 you know a lot of you know uh wealth and opportunity and and things like that i think that's the that's the only way that 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 you'll begin to see some um of the healing but as long as you know we're the developments are booming and there's buildings going up everywhere and you can be rest assured that there is not one brown person that is um, behind that or owning that or designing that. Um, it's going to continue to be the same. So 68 is the same as 78. It's the same as 88, 98, 2008, 18, and I'm sure 28 unless it's reduced to everything's reduced to dust. And I would I would I would add uh, add to Rogers to Rogers point and in, in sort of putting George Floyd in a historical context and and what I've been thinking about uh, two things I've been thinking about one is I'm uh I'm curious about our societal um lack of conversation around the fact that the police force is a extension of um slave catchers um and were from the very beginning, the police were created to protect property, um, which was which was black bodies. Um, and it, it seems as if we have these conversations about police and and the violence police do as if we have collectively either, you know, we don't know or we've forgotten or we don't acknowledge and realize that. So when we talk about reforming police or so that that you know, all police aren't bad. <clears throat> That's true, but the system itself is rotten to the core. 
Uh, and so, so, so that's what I've been thinking about. And, and then, and then the other, the other thing I'm thinking about in terms of culture is how do black people specifically, where, where are spaces where we can, where we can process and heal from this historical trauma that is done to us again and again and again and again, um, that, that quite literally shortens our lifespan. Uh, and, uh, thinking about the lack of 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 you know sort of historical and legacy spaces where that work can happen, um, which is ties to a to a bigger thing that I'm just thinking about constantly, uh, which is about the lack of of institutions that exist you know beyond one generation um, in in communities of color, and and how that is a um, that is a uh, a tragedy in our communities and a tragedy in the broader community as well. What I'm struck by is um, both of you answering um, my initial query um, from distinctly different points of view, but also coalescing on this idea around the importance of space. Um, uh, Roger, you were mentioning uh, talking about developments um, and inferring from that gentrification um, uh, uh, and through that, talking about who owns the space uh, and who's it for, uh, and Deanna, your thoughts also about kind of kind of also returning to space uh, about um, uh, a space for that kind of collective degree of not just reflection, but it seems like articulation um, um, of a more equitable environment. I, I guess I'm wondering if we could talk about that for a moment. We could talk about the um, how important is a space now, um, and how do you start to um, how do you start to go ahead and envision ideal spaces for more equitable communities? Sure. Um, so I, I think like the history of cultural spaces that matter are are important, and so to be able to create space for um, people that don't have um, either the resources or the opportunity to be able to um, to benefit from those spaces. So, when like an example would be, we like we would always like, um, Broadway would have a art crawl, um, and but there was no studios for people to go into to see art. This you know, like early two thousands, um, and so it was important for us to to create those spaces where. Um, um, Northside and, and artists of color would have studio spaces that, that they could afford and their practice could, could like um, uh, bloom or, or, or explode. And so now they're catching benefit. They're catching benefit from their, from their practice um, because there was a space that you could seed that and, and it wouldn't be like super stressful and that like we charge like a dollar square foot now. Um, and I think like those things um, are important and, and also to create spaces that aren't that, that are that are accessible um, and in a, in a in a larger space that's also dynamic and um, but being very culturally specific you know buildings that provide opportunity not just for us at Juxta but for the broader community yeah and and, and in terms of equity I, I think there's you know there's there's economic equity uh, and 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 the importance of of physical space and property as a way that wealth is passed on, um, largely in this country, uh, at least for working class people. Um, so so there's the importance of 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 that you know that financial stake in a place, uh, and of course the 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 data in Minneapolis shows that home ownership and property ownership for people of color and specifically for, for black folks is, you know, we have some of the largest disparities in the country here in, in Minnesota. Uh, but then, but then I think there's also uh, equity in representation in, in space. So there, there's a thing that happens. I, I, I believe, you know, I think we could do the research and prove this out where um, before people become economically disenfranchised from their community before they become, you know, 
uh, economically gentrified out of their community. They begin to be culturally um, gentrified out of their community. So, so they begin to look at the way their community's changing and being developed, and they don't see themselves reflected in the shops that are opening or the cultural centers or the cute theaters or, uh, you know, the, the, the various amenities that are that are coming to the neighborhood that weren't there before. So I think there's something really powerful and important um, and critical to spaces where um, our um, history is reflected, where we can see ourselves um, in what is taking place in, in that space and what is on the stage or what is on the wall or what is being what is being produced. Uh, so so I, I think that's another piece of equity. Uh, in the built environment, equity and space. And, and the importance of those spaces, um, again, lasting beyond one generation, um, institutional spaces uh, that, that, that communities uh, can draw from and contribute to um, for, for multiple generations. That, that notion of the intergenerational space, um, um, space that isn't... Uh, uh, that's um, I, maybe I'm calling it more asymmetrical space, uh, mm-hmm. space that's not simply about um, commerce or mm-hmm. um, living, um, but rather um, it's a stickier, more amorphic space um, that involves different forms of creativity, um, that involves um, different ways of considering well, what makes up a family and that how that family extends into a community. Um, is something that seems like it is so missing from urban planning dialogues, um, and I guess um, I guess I'm I guess I'm wondering um, how do you feel um, that the work that both of you have been doing has been trying to go ahead and, uh, and move that needle and nudge that along? I, I would I would say that uh, I mean to a greater or lesser degree. Everything we do at Juxta, everything we've done at Juxta, and I, and you know, I would say even beyond Juxta, throughout our careers outside of Juxta, really is about about trying to move that needle. Um, I, one of the things I was thinking about in terms of uh, preparing for this conversation and, and thinking about my history and how did I how I come to do the work that I do is that I think a, a thing that Roger and I share is a desire to, um, to, to do work and to create a, a, a company, a business, a, a institution that is benefiting people um, in multiple kinds of ways. So we're not, we're not, we're not interested in, in doing work just from a perspective of sort of um, uh, giving people exposure to things or opportunity to things. We're, we, we want to, to do work that everybody benefits from, everyone who participates is benefiting from it um, in in multiple ways. So, um, I mean, that's the reason we own buildings on Broadway. That's the reason we've continued to buy additional buildings because we think it's important to have community uh, ownership of of physical space. Uh, That is why we have uh, our our core work, Juxta Lab, where we're training and employing young people and artists um, who, you know, 100 people who work at Juxta. Um, that's, that's just at the root of everything we are doing. We're trying to move the needle economically, socially, politically, physically, um, starting at the intersection of Emerson and West Broadway and expanding from there. So the idea of through... Um, through space, you start to transform it into place. Um, um, it's an identified environment. You know, I'd love to know a little bit more about um, about the inception of of Juxta. And since um, um, I, I've certainly kind of read about it, I've had I've been fortunate to have conver- a lengthy conversation with you, Roger. Um, but I just wanted to know uh, if you can talk about. Uh, when the spark really occurred um, uh, and kind of what that gestational process was like. Yes. So, so I think, I think the, so on some level, what you see at Juxta with the textile customization 
the um, large scale public art in the form of um, murals and the the um, graphic design were things that all the founders were doing um, in high school. So you could see this in in um, you know we were doing flyers, we were you know airbrushing shirts. We were so a, a lot like the majority of those things were a part of our practice as teens, and the the uh, wanting to formalize it and be able to like you know make it an, an actual you know organization and program um, came out of um, uh, a part of Peyton's practice, which was being able to show um, young um, artists how to be professional artists through uh, critique and interpretation, through portfolio development and exhibition, and um, and uh, mentoring. And so, like that's 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 when we started to, to like take those concepts and formalize that into an actual curriculum, and then a program. And then a institution like like that. So you know that was probably early nineties, ninety three, four, five. Roger and I met in high school, uh, and 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 Roger and Peyton, are, who was the third founder of Juxta, Peyton Russell, uh, met in elementary school. Uh, so we all grew up together. Um, Roger and I have been a couple since since high school, and Roger and Peyton were were best friends uh, since since elementary. We all grew up together. Um, I, I, I sort of think about three aspects of my background um, contributing to what what became Juxta, uh, and I think all of us actually had some some pieces of each of these three these three things. One um, was uh, strong mentors, uh, key people in my life who. Um, one of whom, Lorraine Berman, was a mentor to me in a formal program through. Um, through uh, a trio program at my high school, but people who hired me um, for my first jobs at the Minneapolis Parks, at the Pacer Center, at the Board of Public Defense, um, who really took me under their wing as a young person that they found to be bright and curious, though I was a kid that was considered at risk. And, you know, I, I, I barely graduated from high school. Um, I graduated at the very bottom of my class uh, out of 1500. Like I was, I was literally number 1500, but I was a gifted and talented kid as well. I, 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 and, and uh, mentors, adult mentors really saw that in me. And Roger had the same, same um, from some of his mentors like Travis Lee uh, and other folks, Gerald, um, who hired him for his first job. I think that Gerald Graves, yeah, from Prince of Glory. Uh, the, the, the other thing, the second thing uh, was all of us had a strong interest in and, and, and um, passion for entrepreneurship from a very young age. Just thinking about, you know, I had a typing business. Um, I had a word processor so I, I could type people's papers and would charge them money when I was in high school and college. Uh, Roger and I had a greeting card business. So, so, and, and then we tended to attract people in our circle who were people, you know, like-minded people of that nature. Peyton was an entrepreneur. Um, as Roger said, he used to do flyers and backdrops and so on and so forth. And then the third thing I would say is we all sort of had a non-traditional education, educational path to some degree or another. Um, Roger and I, uh, both went to the University of Minnesota, both dropped out of the University of Minnesota. He dropped out after a couple of years. I dropped after I dropped out after about four years. And um, we started Juxta uh, a couple of years later. Uh, and in part because we're, we're, we were young people who enjoyed sort of learning by doing. Um, and I think we're still really built in that way. And, and those three components, mentorship, Entrepreneurship, non-traditional education, learning by doing, really make up the core of what of what Juxta is um, still today. Yeah, when you if you if you look at it like so, we have like design philosophies and <clears throat> pedagogical philosophies, and and so like one one you know underlying thing for for us that that you'll see at Juxta is the influence of uh, non-traditional uh, learning. So you know how we structure our classes. Um, is you know part of of uh, of uh, from our experiences. So John Taylor Gatto 
was a teacher in New York who, who like, you know, wrote books, Weapons of Mass Instruction, uh, the Underground History of American Education. So non-traditional approaches to education, um, you know, comes from that. It comes from um, what we experienced in, you know, grade school and high school. So Dennis Lambert was one of my teachers at Marcy Open, and, and, and he was, like, instrumental in um, how you how you teach to you know what different learning styles there are and how you break up the classroom to be able to teach in a different way as well as team teaching um, and then also just just um, maybe doing the opposite of, of what our public um, edu- you know educational system um, was doing for us so that's kind of how we approached it well it sounds like you're you're both well there's so much that that you both said just now that i feel like is worth unpacking um one of them is just this profound sense that um that at certain places in your trajectory uh the the current framework of an educational system let you down um um, whether it's not by seeing uh, providing the territory of engagement dna as you're talking about in high school um uh, whether it's um, not going ahead and um, feeling like that there is um, the degree of, of institutionally focused or institutionally supported mentorship uh, that may have existed um, in higher ed as well. Uh, it sounds like that's had a profound impact on the way that you set up um, Juxta and in particular to provide a kind of a, a counter pedagogical model. Is, is that is that fair? Is that is that a fair way to reframe things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. That's exactly right. Um, I, I think that, that what you, what you heard into, into what we said, Sanjeet is, is, um, our, uh, philosophy and our pedagogy that, that believes in, um, an asset-based approach to, to learning. Uh, and so an asset-based approach, um, uh, which utilizes a learning by doing a hands-on or a heuristic learning model, uh, says that 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 the way to learn is to do what you can right now while you're working side by side with a mentor who is more advanced than you, who may be an expert at a particular thing, and you're seeing and learning that person doing the thing, and then you pick up the next piece as uh, you learn it, um, and and you sort of grow from there. Uh, so, so that's that's very much um, part of sort of sort of countering what we what we didn't have um, in the way in which we structure our, our approaches at Juxta is is it is exactly that um, mentoring is a is another key piece a cohort learning model is another piece so so what Roger and I again as individuals have gone on to do later in life is both of us uh, attended Harvard I have a master's degree. In public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School, um, and I've participated in 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 a ton of fellowships and leadership development courses, and um, you know all kinds of, of of sort of leadership development and and advanced learning as a professional, and have found that a cohort model. Uh, where you are learning with a group that you learn over over multiple years and you and you build a sense of community with that group of people is a very effective way um, to teach and to learn. And especially for non-traditional students who are coming into these spaces already feeling othered, unsure of whether we belong in these spaces, um, and and you know, who have a lot to 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 unpack and and manage out of the gate in being in these spaces. So we're trying to give young people and artists at Juxta a leg up. That's the way we think about it. So that when they when they graduate Juxta, when they leave Juxta, when they go on to do the next thing that they're going to do, um, they have an advantage um, over their contemporaries, even their contemporaries who come from more wealthy and privileged backgrounds. You know, I'm. You both are talking so eloquently about mentorship, um, and I'll, I'll confess, um, I'll confess a degree of feeling like um, the term mentorship has been um, so 
overused in many ways. And by that, I think um, oftentimes it's true original intention has been um, subjugated, recast, um, uh, undermined, whatever, whatever term I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to think of, because I think it's, it's gone on to mean for so many institutions that it's someone with more experience giving advice to someone with less experience. Um, and in reality for me, and I think one thing that I'm, I'm profoundly moved by and the work that Juxta is doing is that it seems to me that mentorship is really about an exchange of, an I- of ideas and values from individuals that are coming to the table with different perspectives and different life experiences. And, and I guess I'm wondering that um, how's the term and the concept of mentorship um, changed for you both? Uh, and I'd say this both from a programmatic level within Juxta, but also for you personally. Are you uh, are you still receiving mentorship? And if so, how has that changed over time? Uh, but I don't know if you and feel free to disagree with my my skepticism about the way that mentorship has been over you. No, for sure. No, I um, definitely agree. So out of like, let's say my five mentors, uh, Travis Lee, Saytu Jones, um, Gerald Graves, Dennis Lambert, Doug Freeman, um, none of them said that, you know, I am I am your mentor or I want to be your mentor or can I mentor you? It's like it, it never happened like that. They they always saw a a spark and and a way to provide opportunity a way to provide feedback and 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 um and a place that we can observe and help so similar to if if your parent owns a store or and you just come in to help sweep up and and you know restock and things like that is is that is that mentoring um yes but not really or or um like kind of how the Amish would, you know, get their, you know, young people out in the um, fields or show them how to, you know, build a house. <clears throat> Are they mentoring them? Uh, I don't know. But so, yeah, I, I, th- I think it is overused. And, and um, I think it's something that you just do. So I'm, whenever we work with young people, we're not like, yes, I am mentoring you now. Uh, <clears throat> similar to like uh, hip hop in a way, which has had a, a, a very, um, you know, that's the, that like my DNA is, is like in hip hop as far as competition, as far as mentoring, as far as things like that. But we never said, I'm going to go to a hip hop party or I am going to dress hip hop. It's just something that you do. Um, and that's 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 how we um, approach this. It's just like ingrained in our DNA um, to to show others. And 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 as far as uh, still being mentored or people still teaching us that are that are um in our in our circle absolutely um all those people who i just named with the exception of you know like my sixth grade teacher um or my uh 10th grade uh uh, first job um that are no longer around still give me jewels and um, help me with opportunity and advice and and uh, things like that so that you know i can do that to others i can when it's when it's my time i can hand the baton um and other people can can um you know run their leg of the race I would say, Roger, I really, I really like that. Um, and, and it, uh, is a reflection of my belief as well. And again, I think the way in which we conduct the work we do at, at Juxta and the work we do period is mentorship as an active commitment. Uh, and Sanjit, you, you said, you, you said two people coming together, exchanging ideas, um, uh, coming from different perspectives, uh, as a part of that exchange, and I would agree with that, but I would I would add to that not just an exchange of ideas, but an an activation of ideas. Um, so when we think about when I think about mentorship in my life, what what it has looked like is is a lifelong commitment to to care uh, about me um, and to to help me. Um, take those next active steps that I need to take to do what I said I wanted to do or what I said I believe is important in the world. Um, so, so it is people who have made a commitment to support me, to, to action my values and to live my values, uh, uh, mostly in a professional context. But I would say that, 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 that it extends beyond just, just profession. It's, it's, it's a care for um, each other. Uh, I think about Travis Lee, who was at um, my my social distant 
uh, going away party on, on Friday and just reflecting on the fact that, that Roger and I have known Travis since we were teenagers, you know, since we were 17, 18, 19 years old. And he is at the front of the, the line, the reception line, and is there, you know, greeting people and, and making sure I'm okay uh, for a couple of hours uh, while, while we're having this event um, that, that's sending me off to McKnight. I, that's what mentorship looks like. And, and Travis has been in our life for 30 some years playing that role. And it goes both ways. He, he, he's enriched and, and we're enriched as well. So it's also not a, um, it's not a old wise, I'm the old, older, wiser, uh, uh, you know, and you listen to me, we're, we're exchanging. It, it, it definitely goes both ways. You know, I, I think that goes back to this idea uh, of, um, of that embrace of, of asymmetry, the embrace of the fact that it's not, um, uh, I don't think mentorship is something that exists in a flow chart or a programmatic diagram. It seems to me that mentorship is something that, um, uh, that uh, you're not able to contain uh, in a spreadsheet or an org chart, um, that, um, that it, um, it's more timeless than that. Um, uh, it's, um, it combines uh, the professional and the personal aspirations that one has um, as well as it seems to me, it's also about kind of a, um, kind of a, kind of a more intimate sharing of, of the specific struggles that one's going through. Um, and, and I guess I just wanted to know, have there been times when you thought the work, whether it was at Juxta or even before Juxta came into light where, uh, where, um, things were hard, uh, things felt daunting, um, and, um, and what was the turning point to, to get around or out or through that? Man, it's, it's, it's like still hard. It's, it's, it's not like, um, somehow <laughs> it's everything, everything is a gravy. Um, now it's, it's like still, it's a super truck. It's a super struggle to get this capital campaign finished. And, and, and that's, and that's, and that's hard. Um, because that's like important work. That's uh, that's like our legacy work. So it's just like in like in life. Um, there's always been, you know, really grimy times. It, it, you know, to the point where you're bringing like change in you know bottles that you've saved up um, so that you can get like food and that whole thing. That was in the like not so distant past. Um, so it's 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 just 360. Like you're you're gonna you're gonna hit those times. Um, and we continue to hit those times as well. So when we're up, we're happy and, we're, and we feel like honored and blessed to be up. And then when, we, when we're down, we know this isn't going to be a permanent thing. And we just got to deal with the, with the uh, stress and strain. So anything from, you know, the economy getting bad and us, you know, having to um, not have a robust uh, offering as we could to, um, yeah, anything. It's just, I think that's 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 just, that's just a part of like the ecosystem that we're in. So there was a turning point to where like now it's all paved in gold and we're just gliding by. I agree with Roger. Um, I agree with everything Roger said. But to your point of of what do we do when we find ourselves in those hard hard places? Because because it's it, it's that's exactly right. It's a cycle. It's up and down, and and there 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 becomes there are, there are periods of time over our 25 year history where we can point to the work being really hard for a while. Um, and, and we're in that space right now to, to, to Roger's point, it's, it's the, the work is hard right now. Um, both the capital campaign being part of, part of the, part of the challenge right now, raising, you know, raising multiple $14 million, double digit million dollars is hard. Um, and it's especially hard, I, 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 I think, for people of color who, who, who aren't connected and networked into institutional and individual wealth um, in the same way that other folks might be. Uh, or for, and, and especially for people leading cultural, people of color leading cultural and leading institutions also. Uh, but, but, but it's also hard right now because, because we're at, we're at, we're at a, we're at a, um, a cyclical phase where the work needs to be different 
Um, it needs to be the, the way in which we do the work needs to be different for the scale of the, the operation we are today. And, and so what we have done over every, every time we're at one of these points is we pause and we do a plan. We make a strategic plan or we make a business, a business development plan, or we, we make, we, we, we stop and we assess and we talk to our, um, our team. We talk to board members, we talk to partners, we talk to the broader community of, of, of folks that we work with and we, and we assess what the next, um, short, mid and long-term, um, um, of the work needs to look like and, and how it needs to be. So, so we haven't done a, st- a full on strategic plan since uh, 2004, 2004, is that right? Yeah, we haven't done a full, no, no, I'm sorry, that's not true, since 2010. We haven't done a full on strategic plan since 2010 and we've done some interim plans to extend that strategic plan a couple of times. So we're, um, we're in the middle of a strategic planning process currently. Uh, and we'll be completing that plan, um, al- aligning with our capital campaign, because that's a part of a part of what we need to what 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 has to happen with regard to a new building is we need to have a programmatic plan um, and and strategy uh, that the building um, can can hold and contain and and you know bring to fruition. Uh, so I, I, we've been we've been really, I would say we've been really smart about about understanding that a strategic plan and a business plan and, a, and the right operations model is important to our success. So as much as you, you hear us talking about sort of more theoretical things like mentorship and, you know, support and culture and all those, those, those things, we also understand you got to have a solid business plan um, to hang the work on. And if I could add on to that, like as people are listening to us, if you could just create a list, if you can create a list of um, development projects or capital campaigns that are um, eight million and up, just start locally and um, then look and see if any of those development projects are um, led like they like the ED or the CEO are people of color and then go to a region, you know, go to, you know, Illinois, Wisconsin, Iowa. North Dakota, South Dakota, and do and do the same thing, and then do it on like a national level, eight million or ten million and up capital campaigns um, led by people of color. It's it's almost non-existent, and like so, that's like the struggle. Do they give? Do people give? Do people support um, black-led cultural institutions, um, black-led workforce development institutions that are that are on that level that are that are like building? So like just on the, just, just for visuals, being able to build a building, people of color build a building that's more than two, than like two, two stories. So on some level, you don't get any points for building a one story building. We've been doing that since reconstruction. So like, let's go two, three, four, and then start to start to come up with a list of, of how many people have done that. And, um, and then you'll start to see like how and why we're frustrated, how and why there's angst, how and why th- there is no equity, even though people use equity. Um, and then, um, like, w- I also look at, at as a motivator, as, as a way to get unstuck, is, is, uh, is one of my mentors, Ashanti Alston. Um, he uh, was locked up for a long time. He was a Black Panther. He's, he's coined the term Black anarchism. Um, and so he, he says Black culture has always been oppositional and has always been about finding ways to creatively resist oppression. Um, so it's not so much tied to the color of your skin, um, but to who you are as a person and someone who can resist and see things differently when they're stuck and thus live differently. And so like, that's, that's how we approach just, that's kind of our philosophy around that too. How can we do things differently and approach things differently when we get stuck? That's really, uh, it's great to hear both of you start to talk about, um, uh, talk about these kind of roles and how they evolve and, and that, that importance of planning. I'm, I'm curious, uh, I'm curious to know your, um, your thoughts about, um, about apathy. Um, uh, and I say that because it, it seems to me, uh, that when you have communities that have been intergenerationally underserved, um, um, when you've got communities that feel like they've been intergenerationally disenfranchised from 
social processes, from uh, political processes. Um, I'm wondering, um, um, how do you how do you contend with apathy um, based on the work that you're doing? And in some ways, that kind of relates to. Um, you know, Roger, you're talking about that kind of arduous climb of looking at the capital campaign. Um, you're talking, you know, we're talking about how uh, these models need to not just be evolutionary, but revolutionary in nature. Um, I'm just curious, um, the, how do you how do you contend with or counter apathy? Um, uh, I would say I'm 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 the more apathetic one in the relationship. I am the I am the yin to Deanna's yang as far as as far as that she is she she helps um, e- even on a on a on an organizational level because uh, I am a fatalist and very and very um, you know I'm not as sparkly and happy and positive outlooking in life so um, I think that's just a part of my personality um, is to is to is to look at like everything that is just like rotten and bad and corrupt and can go wrong and d is the opposite of, of that. So how do I combat that? I don't, I, I embrace it because that's, that's, <clears throat> I, I look at the trajectory and this is where I'm at in life. And I got here, I was like this in fifth and sixth and seventh grade. It was always like this. So that's, that's, that's that energy that I've been coming with. So I'm going to continue that trajectory. Well, I, you know, I appreciate the self-reflection Roger too, but I, I guess I was also meaning apathy towards the work you're doing within within communities that feel like they've been historically disinfected and you're trying to convince them that that what juxta has to offer provides an avenue for change for growth for development um the 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 parents of of an individual that's skeptical that your pedagogy and your practice that you're promoting through through juxta uh, can really be of benefit. Then can go ahead and, and get people on stock. Yeah, that's those are like the that's why it's, it's important as far as visuals. If I think if people can see, um, oh man, you were able to get a two story, three story building. You're able to um, not just uh, paint a mural, but paint a mural that um, we can be involved with and we can make money from. And so I, I think when you when you start seeing. Um, and then being able to access what you see, uh, that's, that's, that's like a super, in, super important part of that. Because if you ever see any, anybody who looks like you that's doing urban planning, that's doing engineering, that's doing architecture, that's like, that's like running things and setting direction and can hire and fire and do all that, then, then that, it, it just becomes kind of like boo. Like I can't, I can't jump over the moon if I can't see other people jump over the moon. Um, as well. And once you see that, then that's important. And I think that's on some level part of the reason why things are like this is because they don't, people will not give you um, the opportunity to be able to uh, show other people that you can jump over the moon and, and they, and, 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 and thus um, it's like training fleas in a way, once you hit your head to a certain degree, you stop jumping. And I would, I would add to that, what I think is sort of what what is inside of 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 what Roger's saying is we we don't try to convince people of of anything. Um, we don't. So so in terms of how do we how do we convince someone that this op, the opportunities available at Juxta are are right for them or they they should give you know give it a shot or or come check us out. We 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 don't. Um, and, and actually I believe that when, when, when folks say that apathy is the reason for lack of participation, um, I think that's actually a cop-out and, and the reason people aren't participating in your thing is because they don't want to, and you haven't made it attractive because people show up and vote with their feet. They vote with their participation. They vote with their presence. So if they're not participating in what Juxta is presenting or offering, then that's because we're not offering something that they find attractive or that they feel like they need. Um, so, 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 I, I don't, I don't think people are apathetic. I, I think the the protests last night, that the that that became that became, you know, riots last night, are are proof that people aren't apathetic. People show up for what is important to them. Um, and we think about our work at Juxta across the board in that way, um, in that when we're meeting with a funder, 
we I remind our team when we're when we're getting ready to meet with a new funder, somebody who hasn't funded us before, we're not trying to convince them of anything. We're not trying to convince them and make them change their mind uh, in terms of what they think about Juxta or what they think about the North Side. We're trying to tell them the truth. We're trying to be as clear as possible, as honest as possible, as uh, as transparent as possible so that they can see into our work. And if they find a values match with that, then we are excited for them to support us. But we're not trying to convince them to support us. It, you know, and I think in some ways that's a that's a really great segue. I really appreciate your uh, your both of your thoughts about uh, about re reframing this notion of apathy uh, in in talking about it being about community need um, and um, uh, and needing to go ahead and um, uh, improve value and merit um, uh, and opportunity to communities. Deanna, you know, you, congratulations, you're about to take on a new role starting at the beginning of June as program director of arts at the McKnight Foundation. Um, and, and within that, one of the questions I had wanted to ask both of you is about that relationship to philanthropy. Um, in many ways, um, it feels like a lot of philanthropy set up on um, a tremendous degree of traditionally white intergenerational wealth um, that came on the backs of of um, um, uh, of underserved communities um, still operates to a certain degree um, with a feudal mentality or maybe better placed a colonial mentality. Uh, and you just mentioned talking about how you've created kind of a firewall with Juxta about your relationship when you're showing philanthropy, kind of what it is that you're doing. Um, I just wanted to know what both of you thought um, um, are the more revolutionary ideas about how philanthropy can operate now and into the future. Oh, um, I don't, so I wouldn't say it was a firewall. I would say it's more that we've created more of like a fugitive community um, that you can grow and do that whole thing with. So um, what can philanthropy, I, I think philanthropy can help, <clears throat> help us and help them um, manifest their values in a way that wouldn't be authentic in a way if they did it, you know what I mean? It's like they, they, you can help support, like philanthropy can help support and um, all that, like indigenous communities and what they're trying to do, what they, what agenda they set and where they identify as, as a, as an area where they need support with or different communities um, in and around the region. So they can help support that, but they can't do that work. So, so it's like they they will give us the opportunity to be able to do the work authentically by financially supporting. Um, D, I don't know what. What do you? What do you? What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 Roger, you said something about um, philanthropy letting the folks and the and the folks who are the intended beneficiaries of philanthropic goodwill be the decision makers about what is needed. Uh, so, so I, I think that that sort of idea is, is, is in many ways really radical uh, in, in terms of the relationship that, that nonprofit uh, institutions and cultural workers have with, with uh, philanthropy and, and donors. Often uh, donors believe that they are the experts and and take a, a, a quite a um, quite a judgmental and and sort of paternalistic um, perspective in their relationship with with um, nonprofit organizations. Um, to 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 your to your point, Sanjeet, uh, Juxta over the years has has um, declined funding from. Uh, from institutional donors who who had a who took a real paternalistic 
perspective towards our work. And we had to say, we, yeah, no, we would prefer, we, we will give you your money back because we cannot work with you in this way. So, I mean, that, that is, that is, that is, that is, um, part of how, again, we approach the work at Juxta from a place of, of sort of self-respect and, uh, real, um, confidence in, in, in the track record of what we do and, and the, the, the value of what we're bringing to the table. Uh, so, 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 so in terms of cultural leadership, which was something that I know you wanted to talk about, I feel like p- part of what I hope, um, what I'm curious about in my work in philanthropy, and, and I'm, I don't want to over speak anything because my new boss, Kara, has been really um, committed to the fact that I'm not starting at McKnight until I start at McKnight. So I don't, I don't need to plan, think, do any meetings in advance. I start on June 1st and that's when I start, um, uh, which has been a pre- uh, exercise um, in, in, uh, for me in um, sort of going with the flow because that's not my natural character. I like to, I like to know everything and I like to have things very planned out. Um, but that being the case, I'm curious about how um, philanthropy might contribute to um, uh, to seeding the next generation of POC um, cultural leaders, Black and Brown and Indigenous cultural leaders, such that uh, that reality that Roger described, that there are, there are, we can count on one hand the number of Black-led cultural institutions in the United States with budgets greater than $5 million dollars. Um, and, and we can count on one hand the number of Black-led cultural institutions in this country that have been in existence beyond one generation of leadership, beyond the founding generation of leadership, and, and that aren't living precariously. Um, so I'm curious about the institution of philanthropy and, in general, its desire to exist in perpetuity and how that sort of timeline might match with uh, a desire that cultural institutions should exist in perpetuity and how we might be able to to marry our values and our sort of structure uh, to, to, to help to change that. I have no idea what that's going to look like, um, but I'm but I'm curious about it. I'm, cu- I, I, I'm, I'm curious about how I might be able to contribute um, to working on that issue. Um, from from my new role. And I would add for like, you can add on to philanthropy, higher education, um, as well as like the bigger cultural institutions um, in that in that they need to have responsibility too. So, you know, they, they think a win is being able to get kind of a, a like a like a provost of color or somebody of color. But then there's 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 kind of like nothing beyond that. Like, are you given full rides? Are you you know, do you have access to to um make the commitment that you talk about with equity and inclusion and really give people full rides at, at, at like these, these uh, four year institutions. And then the, like the bigs, like the um, cultural bigs, uh, they, 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 you know, the uh, same with that, as far as like leadership, uh, again, you don't get points for having the receptionist of color or the, the outreach and engagement um, person of color, like, like somebody who's actually making decisions because those institutions are um, making, are benefiting from uh, people of color work. Same with higher ed. They are benefiting on the people of color sports to be able to, to fund that. But then like nobody's calling shots there. There's no ex- extension into the community and, you know, helping with this, with this, um, these, these walls that, you know, keep you out as far as, um, you know, financial aid and housing and, and support in that way. Yeah, the Walker Art Center, uh, who are, are and and the Walker are, the Walker is a great um, historic partner to Juxta. We've had a we've had a long and and an important historic relationship with the Walker, and the Walker, um, Mia, um, MCAT for that matter, are are better institutions because Juxtaposition Arts exists. So how do we? institutionalize those relationships such that um, Juxta and Penumbra and Two Dance and NACTI and 
theater move um, are stable, solid, um, regenerative organizations that are not fighting for their life decade after decade, while our bigger cultural partners um, don't struggle in the same way. Yeah, and and I think that that um, for me that notion of um, of not just looking at likely partnerships, but also looking at unlikely partnerships, uh, and knowing that oftentimes those partnerships come um, um, come with an acknowledgement um, um, of the power dynamics is so critical. Um, I feel like you know we've really in some ways, this entire conversation has been suffused with thinking about cultural leadership um, in so many different aspects from hearing about um, um, how you two uh, grew up uh, to the formation of Juxta to some of the challenges uh, to talking about philanthropy. But I, I did, as we start to round out on, on time in this conversation, I wanted to, to know from both of you, um, how would you individually define uh, the qualities or uh, or what cultural leadership means to you? Cultural leadership. Um, I'm, like on some levels, like I've never like defined or like saw myself as like, you know, he's a cultural leader in North. That's just like not not the uh, not the narrative. So um, what is the future of, um, I would I would hope that cultural leadership in the areas can grow and be supported. Like, um, for instance, like 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 where can um, cultural leaders go to um, get support uh, in that they have a lot to carry. They have there's a lot that they're responsible for, um, not just the bricks and mortar, but also the human capital um, to you know be able to get health insurance for to be able to you know have a, have a retirement plan like 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 where where do where do they go and are invested in to be able to lift the weight of those type of challenges um, and for a lot of them there is no place for the majority of them there is no place so you have to go ahead and on some level self-medicate and try to figure it out on your own and that's uh, like like that model. Um, I think needs to needs to go away. I think we need to be supported um, and encouraged and grow and and um, taken care of because you know as we've seen in the past, once you know once we fall off and 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 can't lift that um, weight anymore, then it goes back to zero and somebody else has to figure out how to build this institution and these um, this, like these cultural institutions uh, again from scratch, which is which is super problematic. I just keep coming back to 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 the active side of leadership uh and and also not I, I haven't been a person and, and Roger wasn't a person. Neither of us set out to be leaders. Uh well, I mean we we didn't set out to build an institution. So to some degree, I, 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 cultural leadership looks like the active space one takes in the cultural ecosystem um, that is that is that is a lived space that is a that is a get up and put one foot in front of the other every day um, uh, kind of kind of space. Um, so 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 that's that's what I think about when I think about what cultural leadership looks like. Um, I, I don't think it always looks like a, you know, like a physical space, though. I think that I'm thinking about today and I'm thinking about COVID-19 and I'm thinking about what cultural spaces of the future look like. And I believe that that we don't yet know fully what those spaces are going to look like, but they may not always be physical. Um that being said, I don't think the virtual spaces can completely take the, the place of physical space um, because we're human beings and, and, and being together matters and, and being together physically together matters to us. And it always will. Um, so I think sort of being, being really thoughtful and strategic about all the kinds of spaces that, that we need um, today is, is going to be important work, um, for those of us that are, that are, that are leaders in, in culture, 
um, to, to think about uh, over the next, you know, this sort of next new normal period that we're going to find that we find ourselves in and are going to find ourselves in for some time. So, so like right now at this space in time, um, we've been invested in heavily, Deanna and I, as far as education and support. <clears throat> and so like as a cultural, as a, an air quotes cultural leader, um, the things that I want to be able to do is make my mom proud, make say two and Travis proud. And, and like, that's who I look like if, if I can just do like what they did for me for a larger group of people, I think, I think that, that, you know, is, is what, is what I'm supposed to do for this leg of the race. And that's, 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 that's like goals, um, for me. So if that's what cultural leadership is like, that's, that's what I want to do. So we got a lot of influences, you know, in, as, as far as what you, what you should be providing when you are invested in heavily, um, and, and that's how it should be regenerative, um, for the next generation. You know, and Deanna, you also, you brought up COVID-19 and this is one of the longest conversations I've had, uh, without, uh, bringing up the pandemic, at least until the end of the conversation. And so it, it's actually been nice to not have that necessarily be on the front burner of what we're talking about, but it does make me kind of wonder, certainly I, I think I'm amongst a group of individuals that are certainly looking at not just um, uh, how do we get through the pandemic, but what's the what's the more articulate and visionary world we want to see on the other side of the pandemic? And what are the steps that cultural or educational or philanthropic institutions can take to go ahead uh, and move from evolutionary to revolutionary? And I guess, I guess I'm wondering, are there, are there things um, that both of you are thinking about that you would like to see, or you think there's a fundamental opportunity to change when we think about emerging onto a, a post-COVID-19 world? Things that I'd like to see change in post, in the post, in the post-COVID. Um, I, th I think uh, we're saying that there's more than one way to provide um, uh, knowledge or education or things like that as far as virtually. I think that's one thing that's, that's um, changing. I don't think it should be a permanent thing, but it, it's, I think it's helping people stretch. Um, in that way, being able to communicate in, in a different way temporarily. Um, I would also like to see a more, um, what a, like what's coming out of this, people to be more hygienic and cleanly. You know, I, I think that's like an important thing that to, you know, you need not to be, you know, you know, dirty and whatever. And so I think I like the, I like the hand washing and, you know, that, that whole thing moving, moving forward. I think things are going to change as far as, you know, restaurants and, and like that level of, of, uh, you know, cleanliness and, and what's expected in those things. Um, I don't know that that's, that's like kind of hard. I think for the sector, for the arts and culture sector. And, and when I, when I talk about the arts and culture sector, my arms are wide open. So I'm, I'm talking about the educational uh, education systems that are a part of the sector and, and nonprofit, for-profit, et cetera, the, the sector is going to shrink, uh, which always happens when you have a, when you, when you have a, a you know, a significant economic downturn. I, I think that part of that is, is, is necessary. Uh, I, I think if we're, if we're, if we're being honest and, and we look at the sector as a whole, the sector, we, we were riding a bubble and we, and we've known that for a couple of years, Many of us were riding on a bubble and 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 living a bit on a bubble. So there's going to be a shrinking that happens for the whole sector, for the entire economy, for that matter. Um, but I think we have to be careful not to fall, not to believe, not to fall into this this sort of belief that the that the that the the system itself, the economy itself, will make those decisions, and and you know those that don't make it don't make it, and and those that are strong enough to survive survive. Um, I think we have to be really, really thoughtful and strategic in 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 being sure that those um, critical institutions, um, uh, you know, artists, um, et cetera, are supported through this time because we need them to 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 to, to be whole when we get onto the other side. So the sort of just let the chips fall where they may and let the market decide, I think is, is, is a dangerous way to go. Um, because we know that, that people of color 
institutions run by communities of color, rooted in communities of color, are going to um, suffer disproportionately um, during during this downturn. So again, things I'm thinking about as I'm shifting um, to my philanthropy hat in a in a well, few days here. It's been such a pleasure to talk with both of you um, about uh, about your work uh, and uh, and about your sense of the broader ecology regarding cultural equity. Um, uh, you know, I have been really drawn to this community, and it's hard to imagine them almost rounding out on one year of being here. Uh, but I have to say, uh, despite the tragedies over the past uh, months with the COVID pandemic, as well as the recent tragedies this week, um, I'm really heartened by knowing that uh, that the two of you are out within this, this specific cultural ecology and doing the work that you're doing. So, so thanks for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for having us. It's an it's a honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I look forward to more. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Topic. To find out more about all of my guests this season, head to mcad.edu forward slash on topic, where you can find profiles and links of our guests and more information about this remarkable series.